Mindless Can, the podcast, with radio personality Jane Lindley Thomas and psychologist Paul Bushel. Because every act of kindness, no matter how big or small, can change lives. In this series, Jane and Paul hope to enrich your life by giving you practical tools on how to be kinder in your relationships with yourself, with those around you, at home, work, and in your community. So it is with a really full heart that I say greetings and cheery salutations to my darling Paul Bushel. Hello, Paulie. Nice to chat again, my love. Uh, Hello, Jane. I look forward to this moment every week. Me too. Today we're welcoming what feels like an old friend, uh, part of uh, the fabric that is 031, Glynis Horning, a well-known South African mental health journalist, award-winning freelancer, writer. Glynis, welcome to the Kindness Can podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I can't think of a more comfortable space to be on oh. than the podcast and to be with you, Jane. So thank oh, you. Wonderful. Well, thank you, my love. I must say that when I received your SMS um, the week before last, it obviously knocked the wind out of my lungs because I had absolutely no idea that you had experienced what, and I can feel my breathing change while even talking about it, an experience that I reckon doesn't get worse for a parent, and that is losing a child to suicide. And uh, you've written a book called Waterboy, Making Sense of My Son's Suicide. And yeah, I mean, I got the book last week and I've been reading through it and it's been, it's been hard reading it, but it's also been really soothing. Words I would never assume to put in the same sentence together uh, when thinking about the loss of a child. So as painful as I can only imagine it must be, can you take us back to that Sunday? Yeah, it was the strange, well, the thing about it that I remember the most was that it was such a very ordinary Sunday. And it was kind of an upbeat Sunday because my son had graduated from university. He's 25 years old. He got his degree in engineering. And he was about to start the very next day on the Monday morning, his first job. So I was kind of upbeat and, and um, he'd had his problems. He'd, he'd battled with you know, anxiety and depression over a number of years, but he received help and support um, and he got over to the extent that he had started under supervision weaning himself off of medication and he seemed fine he'd started applying for jobs he got his degree and he'd landed the job he was about to start and that Saturday night as per usual when he was around he would he walked the dogs with me and he was he's normal quiet but smiling and soothing self and everything was hunky-dory and he was about to start this new life and then I was reading the Sunday papers in bed, you know, catching up on news before starting my editing shift because I do online editing as well as writing. And suddenly I sensed my husband standing in the doorway and it was strange. He, he didn't say anything. He just stood there and he left there for a while. And then he just said in this, this voice I'll never forget. I think I describe it as a strangled voice. Spencer is dead. I could not believe it. You know, your world the world stops. I mean, at that moment, it just spins. It spins. It's disbelief. It's, this can't be happening to me. It's just came so out of the blue. Um, I mean, I just, I belted down the stairs. And, uh, and um, yeah, and my son stays in a little flat under, under where we live, in this old rambling house next to my home office. And he was just propped up on his cushions and his mouth was slightly ajar, but there was not a mark on him. He looked he looked as beautiful as if he was lying back. In fact, it sounds awful, but it was like a pieta, you know, with his head lying back. And it was just this little bit of pink foam at the corner of his mouth. And I, I could see him there, but you don't want to accept it. You don't, you cannot accept it. 
So, yeah, and then the nightmare begins and you, as it hits into you that this person is gone and gone, you know, in that moment, it's like panic. Maybe they're not really dead. And then you, thank God, my, my second son, my younger boy, um, who was 23 at that stage two years ago, he and his girlfriend helped me and I was trying to phone the police and phone the ambulance and phone that. I, I, I didn't know who to call. Um, yeah, and the next thing, you know, it kind of arranged itself. The next thing I knew, there were vans arriving in the driveway and people coming in, and it was kind of surreal. And mm. literally, they bagged up my boy and they wheeled him out and they loaded him in the back of the van. And we stood there, and within this short space of that little while in that morning, he was gone. And mm. my life was upside down. It, it, it will never be the same again. But you have to learn to work your way through it, Jane. It was, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. And, and suicide is difficult, particularly, I think, because to lose anybody is bad. I've lost parents, grandparents. It's terrible. But to lose a child and, and to lose it in this way where you kind of feel it was their decision, mm. you know, somehow they, they opted. For them, it was the best option. But how could that be? And it must be something I did. That's, mm. that's, that's the part that haunts you. Yeah. I mean, a line that st- stuck out for me was the whole gape still, it always will. And I fall in peri- periodically. And I think the thing that hit me the most and makes me the most emotional is I can imagine as a mom, you fall into that hole quite often because, you know, being a mom myself of three kids, it's in my DNA to believe that my role on this earth is to protect them and when I read the story I think to myself do you often fall into that hole that is what did I miss what didn't I see what could I have done fall into it constantly and they're constant reminders I mean I live still in the same old ramshackle house where he lived with us and so I'm constantly having reminders of him and remembering him in places and and whatever I'm doing and I'm doing my editing shift I'm doing my writing as I glance up or get this, it takes me into that moment. I can't let my thoughts go there because I just, I would fall in. And, and with that falling in, it's the churning. And it's the quiet moments, like you said. I too work this morning just after one. I often do because I'm tired by nine or ten and I'm up, then I wake. And when you lie in bed, that's the worst. I think a lot of people will tell you that because that's when your thoughts churn and you can't silence them. And, yeah, you constantly question yourself. This is the problem. It's like you said of all the things on this planet, it's, it's, it's you're hardwired to protect your young. I mean, whether you're a salmon or a turtle or whatever, you know, you, you, when you have your kids and then you can die. It's fine. You can die. The kids don't die. That's the whole point. And it's your job to keep them alive. And, you know, so you constantly question what, what did I miss? How did that go wrong? And the fact that I, I write a lot on mental health, I, mean, I write on mostly health issues, but others too, but mental health a lot. And, and I thought I understood. I thought I had a handle on it. And but it's it's not the same as when you're actually living with it and facing and discovering what somebody goes through when they're in the grip of it. To actually get the inside view of that, and that's something, Paul. I don't know whether this is part of his thing, but I I don't think the psychologists that we saw and wonderful as they are, we're really marvelous people. Because he was an adult child took the parents and or take the parents and in general and maybe aside, share exactly what that person can be going through. The extreme bleakness and hopelessness and 
not lack of self-confidence and all these things that they often keep hidden. I mean, my son was, was what you, was what you would call a high-functioning depressive. He always looked as though he was coping. He was calm. He moved slowly and deliberately. He was very bright. He did extremely well at school and in, in his studies. And, and, and he always looked okay. And when I, you know, I would think he was right, but he turned fine, Mark. But underneath it, you discover there's all these churning thoughts. And I wish I'd had more insight into the nature, the true black nature. Sounds awful of depression. And I hope that in a way, Waterboy shares that, not to bring readers down, but to give them a glimpse of what the reality is that they are dealing with and how very important it is to, I don't know, access whatever assistance you can and maybe to, it was a difficult one with him. He said he was coping, and I'm sure he said that as well to his, to his therapist. And, you know, I believed him. Why wouldn't they believe him? But underneath it, to discover this whole lot of stuff was going on. I mean, he, he, he had a, a triple whammy because he was diagnosed, um, oh, what, about three or four years before this, with generalized anxiety disorder, plus the major depression. And he has a blood condition known as thalassemia minor, which just means you've, you've got slightly misshapen red blood cells. It's genetic. It comes from my, my husband's side of the family. He unfortunately in, inherited that, which means you don't carry enough oxygen. So your energy levels and your lethargy are very low. So all that builds in to make you particularly prone to this very bleak existence. And now looking back, I also think the fact when he decided he wanted to start coming off his meds, and he did it under careful supervision and whatever. But and maybe I, I wasn't brought to my attention as a parent as quite it might have been that this apparently I discovered office is a very, very dangerous period. And I know the psychiatrist actually said he must start, make sure that he keeps seeing the psychologist regularly, but my boy wouldn't do that. He thought he didn't need to, or he'd been there, he'd done that. He this is the problem, Paul. This is something again for Paul. I get the feeling that sometimes, especially these black boys, I don't know, they they feel that they know what answers psychologists and people want from them or they can present a certain face to them and maybe they they think that they can't really help them. I don't know. It's it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Each person is different. As I hear your experience of it, and I imagine even as a anyone in his life who was trying to to help him it's all those unanswered questions uh, that you're left with that are so hard because it's a different kind of loss altogether like you said earlier but it's all those unanswered questions and the danger of course is when we try to answer them ourselves our natural reaction is to go towards blaming ourselves or or, or thinking the worst Uh, and, and I think that that can be quite a that can be quite a dangerous game to play with ourself, but to the second part of what you're saying there, I think although there are signs that we can look out for with people who who are vulnerable to suicide, but there's a lot of masking that goes on. There's a lot of I'm fine. Yeah. There's a lot of I'm going to be okay. Uh, telling the people who care for them all the things they want to hear, and then yeah. if I go back to how you started this conversation. And it's certainly my experience as, as well, working with families with us on those random out of the blue days when we expected at least uh, the unimaginable happens. And I think that's very hard for
for everyone in the situation to get their head and their heart around. Glynis, how do you think writing the book has helped you on your journey? I don't know. It's, it, it was actually part of my journey because in a way, I mean, it, it was put together from, from the beginning. I have three best friends from primary school and junior school days who are now spread across the place. One's in St. Louis in America, one is in Copenhagen, the one is in the Cape. And from the beginning, I was messaging them on WhatsApp and they were messaging me support. So it, in a way that became the backbone or the spine for the book. So it almost wrote itself on that and I filled in around that in a way. As with the conversations with them, I think it's, it's always good. I mean, I know part of therapy is to put it out there and to lance the boil, as it were, and to, to yeah, and, and to, in a way, to try and honor the boy, keep him alive a bit. I mean, I think that, to me, is part of, yeah, keeping keeping his memory alive. And, and so it was, it was important for me. Speaking about, you know, ways in which you, you are dealing and continue to deal, because I assume you will live around this pain for the rest of your your earthly days, um, I was quite soothed in how soothed you were in the water. Um, yeah. I assume that a lot of people, when they go through grieving or trauma, find different ways and different lifeboats to jump into. And the pool has been such a soothe for you, hasn't it? It's been amazing. It's kind of what's kept us together because from the very beginning of this happening, I think people couldn't quite believe it. My husband and I would still go every morning to the pool. It kind of grounded us, grounded is the wrong term, it sort of immersed us. It, you know what I'm saying? It, it brought us back to earth and just the movement and the, the meditative rhythm of swimming and the coldness of the water. And, and, and I know, interestingly enough, I've been doing pieces lately, health pieces on the vagus nerve and how that's linked to stress. And in fact, a way of stimulating the vagus nerve is a wild swimming, which is very, very cold water. And although we swim in the pool been pretty damn cold their heating system hasn't been that that hot but swimming in cold water and keeping moving and having a routine every day and getting up and doing the same thing it's those little baby steps that get you through especially at the start when you just think what is the point it's tempting to pull the blankets over your head and just and and I can't do that I could never do that I've got a husband who needs me he's not well either I've got a younger son he's a varsity still so you know putting the blankets is not an option and it didn't help anything. So, and for my boy who went as well, he wouldn't have wanted that. So, yeah, one swims, one does a little bit of whatever, and one plods on day at a time, baby steps, baby steps, baby strokes. <laughs> yeah. When reading the book as well, Glenn, it's just putting the pieces together because obviously the question at the beginning of the book was, well, how did this beautiful boy die? And then yeah. when gathering the information as you gathering it along the book to realize, that it was so premeditated that he had gone to such lengths to do it in the most respectful way for you and the family to just quietly go in his sleep, so to speak. Does that make it any easier? Yes, it does. I mean, I've got to honor that. I just, I I don't know how he managed. I think it's extraordinary. You know, I'm, I'm in communication at the moment with other people who've reached out to me who've lost one a spouse, one a child, and, and many other ways to hanging. And, you know, and there, there's so many other ways. And uh, part of me is this has made it easier the way he did it. <sighs> yeah, because at least I can hold to the idea that he went peacefully, that 
Yeah. And it's, it's amazing that he was able to achieve that. <laughs> um, not everybody has, has the luxury of doing that. If you have made up your mind absolutely and utterly to have the chance to do it and, and to, to have the nows to find ways to do it. I mean, it must still be terrifying when I think of the courage that all of us live our lives shying away from death. It's the one horror. I mean, people shy from a snake or a spider or, you know, car passing too crazy, car bungee jump. I mean, it's one of those. And to some, for somebody to actually choose that as an option and then find a way that they hope will do it in a way that will be, yeah, the least traumatic for those who find you. And I think that was at the top of his, his agenda. And I just think it was extraordinary. And kudos, my boy. Kudos. But it doesn't make using him any easier on one level. But in another way, yes, if it's going to go anyway, thank you, everyone. Thank you, my boy, for, for doing it like that. Yeah. Unless I think as you're talking, I think what stands out for me is just how important it is to talk about suicide, how important it is to use that word and, and to talk about it in ways that don't have to be secretive or hidden uh, in metaphors or euphemistic. I think saying the word out loud and talking about it in real terms is, I imagine, so important in, in a family's healing uh, but also in young people's lives who who are struggling uh, with these thoughts of, of suicide and and kind of saying the word out loud and talking it through with them, uh, making it less yeah hidden, I think is so valuable. And, and I hope that your book inspires this kind of way of talking for people. I hope so, Paul. It's the only way we've got to call it what it is. And I remember initially with me too, when it first happened, people would say, well, how did your son die? And I knew they were going to branch if I used the word. And I, I kind of almost touched it for them with it for me. And I'd say, all I said was the words depression, the word depression. It only took one word and people knew, they understood. But as it went on, I thought, no, you know, it is what it is. And, and by using the word, it kind of allowed, they was not to even slip around the edge of it. Oh, I'm so sorry, um, blah, blah, blah. And then change the subject. They almost feel that, okay, sure, if, if we can use that word, it's a reality. We, we can... We can maybe push it or ask a bit more. And then, and then suddenly their stories start to come up. I've been overwhelmed, you know, since just this last week or whatever, since word of the book has gone out, the number of people who've contacted me, and I'm talking about people who I don't know what at all, people like who are on my list of contacts, who are like professionals, who are like medical professionals that I've dealt with when I've done stories for aspect on cancer or this or that, who've contacted me and said, I just had to say I lost this person. And I, I've never really told anybody about this. I've said, you know, let them think that it was illness, but it was it was suicide. And people have started saying this word, and it seems to like liberate them in a way. I know, I know, it's liberated me. And I mean, I, yeah, I think it's very important to get that conversation going, and so that these young people, particularly and everybody who's thinking about it, can address it with their families and friends and, and talk through and just say that this is what I. You know, I'm being driven to, and there's more and more of this now. Oh my goodness! With the lockdown, I was speaking to Cassie Chambers, who's the operations coordinator for SADAG, for the SA Depression and Anxiety Group. Just the other day, she was saying before lockdown, they used to get 600 calls a day to do with depression, anxiety, all this. Now they're getting 2,000, and people are, you know, the idea that well, I'm not needed around, or I can't get a job, or I'm a failure, and I can't support my family anyway. I might as well just go. There's people feeding this all the time, and, and it's important that they can just 
speak about it to people who understand will reach out and say, no, we need you still. We want your love. We want your presence in whatever form. We will get through this together. We will somehow scrape together. We will share our resources. We will do it. It's desperately important. It's desperately important. Yeah, I think the only thing that makes me happy about what you just said is the the idea that people are reaching out for help and they are talking about it. And I think SADAC do amazing work. And if you are listening and struggling with depression and anxiety in your life and those suicidal thoughts and fantasies are coming to you, really encourage you to, to reach out uh, and talk about it, especially for young people when you often get a fright when you have that thought for the first time or that thought keeps knocking on the door. And I think when you are younger, it's harder to separate the fact that sometimes my brain comes up with really bad ideas and those kind of intrusive thoughts don't have to be true and I don't have to listen to them and I can find other alternatives, especially when you're in that young developmental stage in your life. It's harder to separate that out. But when you can talk about it and talk about it openly and use words like I thought of suicide or I've been thinking about it a lot We can only hope uh, that someone in your life can intervene and normalize that for you, that people have those thoughts sometimes, but let's look at what your other options are. And maybe I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but I I think that talking about it and using real terms, there's value in that because the media talk about it a lot. Uh, They put it out there. So kids have reference to it. They see it sometimes as, as viable options. That's sometimes how the media seems to set it up. Whereas when other people can, other adults, caring people in their life can you know, give, maybe give them other ways of looking at it, there's value in that. So if you are a parent listening to this, I think, Linus, you would agree with me that, yeah, say the words, talk about it. Absolutely. And if you're a young person, like varsity age, SADAG also have now set up um, emergency helplines, which are 24 hours a day and weekends too, when students need them at a number of universities. Um, I think there are about seven or eight, maybe even more universities who already have that. And I know Zane, who is the founder of SADAG, um, is keen to set them up for other um, institutions of learning too. And for corporates, for businesses, please, if they can just approach SADAG as well. And that gives their students and their workers a direct line of where to share these thoughts, these very black thoughts, and what other alternatives might be. You know, people always think that there's nothing, but sometimes there is. My son had the triple whammy. You know, if you didn't have the thalassemia and the anxiety and the depression, it might have been okay. Many people, many people are helped by medications. Well, you know that medications can be very effective, but they do have to be adjusted and taken very carefully. And you've got to keep checking back. And cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy can be really helpful for others. But these days it's difficult. A lot of people can't afford to go that route. Yeah, so but just the starting point is to reach out to professionals like Stadag, and people like Paul, psychologists, therapists, if you possibly can. Well, Glennis, I mean, thank you for your courage. Um, Waterboy is just so beautifully, tenderly written. It's raw. Um, you can't get around the discomfort. I toss and turn with you when you can't sleep. And obviously published just in time for World Suicide Prevention Day on the 10th of September. And as I SMSed you over the weekend, it was just quite remarkable. I was reading the the lines that you said you couldn't sleep and one of your friends had SMSed you and said, Spencer is safe now, sleep. And one of my children got off the beach and came and put a flower in the spine of the book. And I just thought it was just, it was universal. It felt like almost a nod from somewhere just saying, 
sleep and rest when you need to. And then I SMSed you again to say I was lying in bed reading the book and the kids again, without any prompting, had picked flowers from the beach and came and surrounded Spencer and your book with flowers. And I just thought, Flip, this is like this continuous universal connection between a mother and her son and his story. And I think it's so remarkable that through your courage, you've given him a voice when he's no longer here. We know his atoms are here. And I love the way you refer to him as atoms throughout the book. Um, he will always be here and you've given him legacy. Uh, you gave him birth and you now give him legacy, which is, is quite something, Glynis. Oh, Jane, thank you. You move me deeply by hearing that and it can help anybody in any way. And, and little things that indirectly through the royalties of the book will go to the essay, Depression and Anxiety Group. And if people like that can be there to provide some kind of buffer for people and, and, and a sounding board and just help them through it. But Jane, thank you so much for your your response and your reaction and you sent me a picture of the book on your breath of the flowers on it and you moved me to tears again yesterday that's very beautiful and all I can say is hold your children tight hold them tight <laughs> and mm. love them I know you do with all your heart Jane that's all mm. we could ever do mm. lots of love Glennis and thank you so much for your time and again for your courage thank you Jane thank you much love You've been listening to Kindness Can, the podcast. Find out more at kindnesscan.co.za.